Hello and welcome to season four of Mouthwash, fresh chat that leaves you feeling more confident with me, your host, Paul Armstrong, creator and curator of TVD Conference. The theme this season is the real future of work. What's really going on with the world of work under the hood? What's changing? What's not being said? We're checking assumptions, checking in on ourselves and also the future. I spoke with an amazing array of people from Dan Pink to Harvard University professors, TikTok superstars, data specialists and generational experts, all live on Twitter spaces. What follows is a recording of that space, so it's more conference call than podcast booth. Sponsors are incredibly important to me, and I am proud to say Ecology are back, and they planted a tree for every live listener we had. We're over 15,000 trees in the TBD forest now, and you can start planting your own over at ecology.com. That's spelled E-C-O-L-O-G-I dot com. Workplace by Meta also came on board this season. Their familiar features help everyone work together in new ways and whatever you bring to work to help you be you, Workplace celebrates it. To make your place of work a great place to work, visit workplace.com forward slash human. Check it out. It's very, very cool indeed. Make sure you never miss a moment of Mouthwash by signing up for the newsletter over at mouthwashshow.com. And you can also get a text alert over at mouthwash.norby.live. Very handy for busy people. Check out all those links in the description too. As with all good podcasts, please share it on a network you trust and leave us a review. It really does make a difference. Please enjoy the show. Hello and welcome to season four of Mouthwash, fresh chat that leaves you feeling confident with me, your host, Paul Armstrong, creator and curator of TBD Conference. The conference attendees say is like Ted without the bullshit. We're flipping it up this season. We're live Tuesday through Thursday. You get the same amount of mouthwash, don't worry, just spread over the middle of the week. It's a reflection of the times, really, and changing world of work, which is our theme for this season, uh, the real future of work. This season, we're exploring what's working, what's not. We're checking in our assumptions. We're checking in on ourselves and also the future. I want to know what's really going on under the surface, where it's all going and how we're going to get there. I have an amazing cohort of people joining me this season, from multiple best-selling authors like Dan Pink to brand new startups who are creating new models for the metaverse. I'm also discussing the future with experts from Harvard University, behavioral psychologists to TikTok superstars. You can check out the full lineup and previous episodes of Mouthwash over at mouthwashshow.com. I'm also proud to say that we are sponsored again this season, this time by the folks over at Workplace by Meta. Whatever you bring to the world of work, uh, Workplace celebrates it. Their familiar features help everyone work together in new ways, and you can make your place of work a great place to work. Just visit workplace.com forward slash human. Check it out. Very cool stuff indeed. Ecology is also back. Uh, They're planting a tree for every live listener in the TBD forest, so we're over 15,000 trees at the moment. If you're looking to reduce your or your business's carbon footprint, head over to ecology.com and you can start planting your forest today. Uh, And Ecology is spelt weirdly. They're one of those funky startups. It's E-C-O-L-O-G-I dot com. That's E-C-O-L-O-G-I dot com. Um, so now's a great time. Share space. Please do. Click the round blue plus button in the bottom right hand side of your screen. You tell the world that you found something good that they should get in on as well. Everyone that gets into the space means another tree in the world. And I think you'll agree that's no bad thing. So, yeah, blue plus button bottom right hand side and get to it okay if you want to ask a question as well just DM me uh, during the show or use the mouthwash show hashtag and we'll pick it up from there as well. Okay, on to tonight's guest. Joining me from Tulsa, Oklahoma in the US is David Berkus, former business school professor. David is an organizational psychologist by trade, but now works with leaders from organizations from Google to the US Naval Academy. David has been featured in Harvard Business Review, Fast Company, Bloomberg Inc., Wall Street Journal, just to name a few. He's been on the TEDx stage. 
as well as a speaker and prolific author. His latest book, Leading from Anywhere, focuses on leadership, remote working, culture, and a lot more. You can buy it from any good bookstore or online, and you can find out more and sign up to the extremely good newsletter as well over at davidberkus.com. That's D-A-V-I-D-B-U-R-K-U-S.com. Welcome to Mouthwash, David. What did I miss out of your bio? Oh, no, that was um, that was that was pretty solid. Thanks for even saying that the uh, the newsletter was great. I am uh, listening to your whole intro, regrettably not a TikTok superstar. So I guess <laughs> I'm, I, I'm one of the thinkers, researchers, academics on your list for this season. But it's an amazing season you put together. So thanks for having me be a part of it. Thanks. Yeah. Tessa White was absolutely phenomenal. She's one of those people that, you know, when you're just mindlessly scrolling through TikTok or with a purpose, I've never found someone who goes to TikTok with a purpose, but I'm sure there are people that like that. Um, and she just, she's got this cult following of young people, but also older people. She showed me the demographics and uh, it's just an interesting uh, new world of work that's burgeoning over on there. Some of it is comical, you know, they're taking the mick out of older generations and that, but then a lot of it is very, very helpful, like how to quit professionally, how to manage up and that sort of stuff. So, you know, it's almost like a public service. I said she should be getting paid by someone. So, yeah, for sure. Yeah, um, that's great. Okay, we're talking about the future of work this season. What's your current situation when it comes to work? Back at the office, always been remote, no co-working for you. What's your like? <laughs> so I've been working from home most of the time since about 2016. So uh, I was a full-time business school professor for almost a decade and then around 2016 when my second book under new management came out life got really busy invitations to speak or consult travel schedule got a little crazy and unfortunately they overlap like uh, conferences are in the fall and the spring and so is a teaching semester so i had to start scaling back in 2016 uh, i was still teaching all the way up until covid essentially most universities took a pretty big financial hit uh, during COVID and when the university that I was with started asking people to take voluntary pay cuts, I said, you know what, um, maybe you should just take me off the roster. There's really no reason to, to keep me on if it means somebody else's cut. So uh, now I've been been full time from home, uh, I guess, I mean, almost starting in 2016, full time for sure when uh, when COVID hit. But it didn't really feel like that big of a shift because I had already set up my home space uh, really, really well. Unlike a lot of people in those first two weeks where their home office was, you know, hiding behind a folding screen in their in their kitchen or in their spare bedroom or something like that. Yeah, I, I heard a lot of Ikea. Um, what's the th I forget what it's called. It's like they're three by three. Um, what do you call it? Um Oh God, I've lost a shelving unit. So people yeah. could like sort of change it and say like, oh, I'm in another room, <laughs> that sort of yeah. stuff. There was a lot of weirdery going on. Um, but yeah, it's it's, uh, it's certainly interesting to sort of see a lot of people's homes. I think a lot of people got a house proud over it as well. Um, yeah. I mean, I, I think it, to be candid, I thought the weirdest thing was when we all tried to hide our homes for those first couple of weeks with the yeah. virtual backgrounds. And then when like, you know, a, a child's arm or a cat would come running through the virtual background, you realize like, oh, I'm just going to have to show people where I live, which... I was all for because I think it made the experience of being on a video conference much more human when you know what situation someone's in. God, I mean, if you're a leader, you kind of want to know where your people are, right? You know, and be like, oh, God, that's a terrible situation. How can I help them? You know, or, you know, what it, just knowing what it is would make you a better leader, I, I would assume, and that sort of stuff. So, yeah. Um, OK, personally or professionally speaking, what's been your biggest learning over the last two or three years? Um, you know, it's, it's, it's funny. I might even call it a relearning. So my first book was actually about innovation and creativity and how that happens in organizations and in teams. And we talk about this, um, this idea of a eureka moments being a myth, 
right? That it doesn't actually uh, just suddenly come to you from somewhere else. It usually comes from strategic incubation time. Uh, but before the pandemic, I mean, I was quite busy. Uh, like I said, I had to step out of certain duties to keep everything running. Um, uh, my wife is an ER physician. And so I used to joke before the pandemic that we were the tag team parenting champions of the world. I almost had belts made that said that for our 15th anniversary. I was planning it. And then and then COVID happened and everything slowed down. I mean, in the first couple of weeks, obviously, she was way busier than ever before. And so I had to, mm. to step back from from what I was doing. But even over time, over the last two years, we've realized work doesn't need to be at the center of one's life and also that it's okay to do nothing for a time. And then when you embrace that, something amazing happens, you start to get more eureka moments. You start to get more because you're having more incubation. You're having more time where you're just sitting mm -hmm. doing what we might call nothing, but is actually what your brain needs in order to come up with those brilliant ideas. Yeah, space, analogous thinking, you know, just filling it with mindless things, but at least you've got more input so that you can connect things and that. So yeah, 100% agree with that. Um, before we talk about the book, which is obviously all about remote working in the world of work, um, let's talk about culture in general. That's what we're going to be talking about. Um, so let's dive into the slightly murky world of workplace culture. Um, it's uh, You've done the research. What, what is culture in your eyes? You know, you can say, how has it changed recently, if it has? Uh, but I, I'd like to know what's an up-to-date version of culture. Yeah, so people used to use this phrase, uh, you know, it's the way we do things around here and that sort of stuff. Um, I think that's actually a pretty good one. I might use the, that it's it's habits. It's the habits of interaction that we that we have. And that runs the gamut from how we treat each other, but also what our inside jokes and what our jargon are and those little habits and rituals that we do on a regular basis. And what I've found, especially over the last couple of years as I've researched into it more, more closely, um, is that while every organization's positive culture will tell you it's so unique and fun. What they're really saying is it doesn't suck. Um, but the cultures that are solid are not actually unique. They're actually really, really similar to each other. They're just not like what most of our experience of work are. So if you, if you run into that, if you found a culture that you really love working with, whether that's a fully co-located or a fully remote organization, you find a company culture and organizational culture you really love, um, it seems unique. But the truth is they all have um, arguably some some common elements. Uh, the other big realization I think I've had over the last two years in culture, and this was maybe my big eureka moment for the, I don't know, for the pandemic, was that I think we've misplaced our focus a lot of time. A lot has been written, too much has been written about company culture. I even said it multiple times in the past. In reality, over the last two years, those of us who've been working remotely, working from home, whether by choice or not, it's the team's culture that's mattered much more than the organization. Right. And a company is just a compilation of teams. But if you think about more and more of your interactions are with the same dozen or less people, right? 85% of the interactions you have are probably with people on your team. So the culture of your mm. team matters way more than what you might call your company culture. Yeah, and I want to talk about the Google stuff that um, was in the book. Uh, I, I did some more research on that um, afterwards. Really fascinating study. Um, let's hold that for a minute, though. Um, culture eats strategy for breakfast is a famous Peter Frucker quote. Um, culture is something I think a lot of people think they have. Well, let's say businesses think they have. Um, but when the chips are down, I think a lot find out they have a page on a website. To your point, just that's there, you know, you, it's lovely to sort of say that, yeah, all teams are pulling together. I think that's different to culture. I think you have a you can have a culture of helping each other. But actually, I think culture goes much broader than that. Or certainly it's certainly been sold to me like it should do in places that I've worked. 
uh, and I've worked for what startups I've worked for MySpace big media agencies little ones and that sort of stuff everybody sort of said we have a workplace culture nine times out of ten it's been surrounding alcohol which I want to ask you about later <laughs> but um, I'm very interested in where culture is going in the fractured workplace do you think offices are just going to become theme parks where you immerse yourself in the culture well okay so he, so here's a big misconception right um, I think a lot of those, th there are certainly organizations and teams that stumbled into positive cultures, but didn't build them intentionally, mm. right? Um, and, and so as a result, they say, oh, we've got a great culture, but we don't really know how to reinforce it other than continuing to get people together. Alcohol is a pretty decent social lubricant for doing that, but too much alcohol ends up, people make career limiting moves and that becomes a problem, right? Um, so I, th I think that's the big problem. A vast majority of organizations that have a positive culture maybe have no idea how they stumbled into it. They just know they don't want to lose it. And they know that it came from getting people together. And then so for the last two years, I mean, that's on, quite honestly, that's the bulk of what I've been dealing with with clients over the last two years is panic because our prior way to establish culture was to get people together. And now we've had that taken from us. And then, uh, and then we're in a rush to sort of to rebuild that by getting people back. In reality, mm. it's it's a deliberate thing that can be built. I think, you know, as we talked about the Project Aristotle, the Google study, that's a really good template for, for what you want to build. But you, what that's what you tend to see in enduringly great company cultures or, or team cultures is they usually were built that way deliberately, either through a coach, if it's like a sports team or something like that, or through a startup founder that's, that's wise enough to, to know that, or at least a team that joins early enough in the company's history to build something really deliberately, not just um, unintentionally. Oh, yeah, this is a really fun place to work. You should be here more often. And if everyone's here, then that means we have a great culture. Mm. You mentioned um, in the book a lot, how do companies, um, sorry, you mentioned respect a lot in the book. Um, how do you think companies know if they have a respectful culture? Because you can have a collaborative one, like you've mentioned in Teams. And I think that's partly down to the people, not just reading, you know, oh, you've got to be collaborative. That's quite, you know, everyone should really be collaborative. It's quite, you know, a nasty thing not to be usually. But um, re respect, how do companies, you know, know that they have a disrespectful culture or a good one? Yeah, well, I mean, I think I think most people know whether or not they've got that sense of being uh, disrespected. Re respect is really one half of a of the coin, uh, or one side of the coin that is psychological safety, right? The feeling mm -hmm. that you can uh, that you're safe to take interpersonal risks, that your failures, if they're truly learning opportunities, et cetera, are not necessarily um, held against you. I, I mean, obviously, you know, moral failures and that sort of thing is a different category, but. Projects fall apart. We lose clients. Sometimes it happens. The difference is whether or not you learn. And psychological safety is uh, a mix of trust and respect. They're, as I said before, they're sort of two sides of the same coin, and they both have to do with collaboration. If I don't trust the people that are on my team, I won't speak up when I have a different idea, a different perspective, a, a, cr a crazy idea that just might work, or when I see something that no one else is seeing that might be a vulnerability. If I don't trust, I won't speak up. Respect happens after I speak up. Do I feel that I was actually heard? Do I feel that I was listened to? You don't have to act on my advice, but you do have to let me know that you're listening to me, that you're paying attention mm. to the contribution that I'm making, right? Um, and, and you know, what's funny is a lot of organizations that are doing this sort of poorly try and do the respect. They'll, they'll do, you'll do the employee surveys, right? You'll do the annual engagement survey and other sort of things. And yet the simplest way to convey respect is sharing those results out broadly. And I never mm -hmm. see it happen. I've, I've been in the senior leadership team meetings where we go point by point through the data and looked at it. 
and then walked away realizing, you know what, the other thousand people who work for this organization are never actually going to see this full report. Um, that's a pretty good way to, to suggest that maybe we don't respect your opinion as much. If you take that survey, you need to make sure that people, or if you give that survey, you need to make sure that people um, are, feel listened to. Same thing in a team meeting, in an, in an individual meeting, we, we need to make sure that we're thanking people for their contribution. Even if we don't run with it, we're talking about how their idea made the ultimate plan better, et cetera. Uh, and, and really, the respect piece is crucial because we watch each other too, right? If I'm, Paul, if you're interacting with, uh, with you know, somebody, with our senior leader, right, and you speak up and then I feel like you didn't get sufficient respect, oh, now I don't trust that the team will mm. reciprocate in kind. So it can create a virtuous cycle or a vicious cycle depending on how we act, whether or not we act with respect and civility or whether or not we just say, yeah, okay, and move mm. on. I, I I agree. I like those. Uh, I like those points. Um, I think part of psychological safety, trust, and respect—they are they're all the sort of the, the trifecta that people sort of want and usually fail at. A business, as I found, um, both have come up several. Sorry, all of them have come up several times this season. I'm still not sure what the future is when it comes to how we'll all be working. Though we've never had more freedom to work, but we've also never had more surveillance tech being bought by big. And I was surprised by small firms. Right? Isn't surveillance tech just a way of telling your people you have a culture of distrust? Yes, uh, unequivocally, yes. I mean, there there are certain situations where that might be appropriate, right? Like one thing that's going to happen, no matter what, in the, in the future of work is we're going to see an increase of uh, of contractors, if you will, an increase of almost enterprise level um, intellectual outsourcing. Firms like Upwork are moving away from the simple fiber or you know the Uber of talent model to trying to to serve enterprises with oh you need a whole team of 24 coders for the next mm. 18 months, we can arrange that. And in those employment situations, it's not unreasonable to say, okay, well, if we're doing this contract and we're paying you by the hour, then we need to know that we're actually, that you're actually working for the hour. So there are limited situations in which I understand it. Uh, I don't know of a situation in which it's viable for a salaried employee. I, I really do not. The only things I could think of would be situations where interactions might need to be recorded for quality assurance, like on all of the call centers that we hate calling into um, or something legal like in a healthcare or a situation or something like that. But that's not how most mm. people, these are limited situations and that's not how it's being used. And for the most part, it's being used in the sense of I used to judge performance by your presence and now you're not here. So the next best thing I have is judging when you log on and when you log off. And, and even before the software, we saw this early days of the pandemic. I know too many managers, hopefully most of them are no longer team leaders that would start an end to every work day with a zoom call just 15 minutes oh, to check yeah. in and it became pretty obvious that it wasn't checking in it was really just making sure you're still around or it was checking that you know what your to-do list is for the morning <laughs> right I've, I've been in those calls i've been in those calls for sure um i guess it's unfair to sort of like lay that at, you know just the 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 leader's feet as being their fault because you can't manage what you don't measure you know so you have to have some element of measurement and remote work is only going to make that more and more challenging um but how does that work in a remote and hybrid world every decision seems to make more work for the business you know if you're trying to fix those sort of things so is it any wonder i guess they're pushing back and sort of buying all this tech how, how do we make this change smoother yeah well i i think the irony here is that um we were making fun of the do you make do you know what your to-do list sort of thing is but the, the reality is a lot of people you know necessarily don't i mean it's it, it feels like so long ago it was only two years ago but a lot of people showed up at the office and let their calendar or someone else's calendar 
or somebody else that was there with them, just kind of tell them what mm-hmm. they're supposed to do or their, or their inbox. Right. But they didn't necessarily know what the, what the priorities were. Right. So, uh, so this is something you see. I mean, I became even before remote work made the giant leap that it did during the pandemic. I became a big fan of stealing certain insights from, from the world of agile, from the world of scrum. I, I don't mm-hmm. actually mind the idea of a daily standup where everybody's covering. Here's what was priority. Here's what we completed yesterday. Here's what's priority for today. Here's where I need help. I don't think it needs to be a synchronous conversation for most people. I think it could actually be a report that you put into your teams or your Slack or something like that. Um, but I think that helps clarify for people what the priorities are and makes them easier to measure. The problem with these surveillance softwares and, and things like that is that we didn't have those clear systems of priorities in place. When lots of people are showing up without really knowing what the priority for them to work on that day is, it becomes really easy for management by walking around to become measurement by walking around. And the only thing you can measure is butts and seats and when. Mm. Um, I think it was a blog post actually you wrote um, maybe last year um, that clarity was a a key component of culture. I think that's what we've just been talking about. There's two kinds, role and work preferences. Um, It got me thinking back to a point I've asked a few guests um, this season. Um, Is work terrible because we just use email badly and don't fully understand the businesses we join? Uh, Lack of of clarity creates an awful lot of... um, annoyances in the job is the, probably the most diplomatic way to say that. So, so yes, mm-hmm. I don't, I don't want to point the finger at email. Okay. So here's the problem with, with email, right? The problem is that everyone agrees that it's terrible and everyone's solution for fixing it is if the whole world would just use this tool the way I use it. <laughs> okay. I mean, I agree if we had one set of rules for everyone that probably would solve it. We're just never going to get to one set of rules. And that's why there's clarity goes along with what, I, what I'm now, instead of preferences, I'm now calling sort of empathy, right? Understanding how someone is working, what their preferences are. Uh, how they dip, signal different, like it, it's broader than just workplace preferences. It's also their emotional state, the context they're working in, et cetera. If I have that level of understanding, then whatever tool we use becomes more useful, right? So there's clarity on priorities like we've been talking about, but then there's also making sure that we take the time to understand the, the different idiosyncrasies of the people that we work with. Um, something that previously we figured out, but we figured out by being in person, right? And this is, I think is the big challenge over the last two years of newly remote teams has been the ones that work together in person made the switch a whole lot easier than, you know, I worked with an organization last year that went from 35 to 120 employees during the pandemic. That's a, that's a lot of getting to know each other via zoom. Mm. God. And yeah. And a lot, most of those tools don't help you do that very well. That's the other thing. Or they, they sort of like have forced fun elements of like, what was your first job? Should you go for a coffee with this person? You know, and that sort of stuff. It's, it's, it's sort of interesting the way the world, the tech world has sort of done, you know, here's how to break the ice. You know, it, it feels sometimes a bit contrived sometimes. Yeah. Um, yeah. The, the, the fundatory or recommendatory activities. Yeah. 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 They're, they're in my, in my view, they're, they're valuable if you've got nothing else, yes. uh, but, but a fairly empathetic leader can actually bring up similar conversations in the course of kind of a regular meeting. And then we don't have to go to the forced happy hour. Yeah, exactly. Please answer this question I've put on the channel. Yeah. Um, okay. Let's uh, I, we're sort of going in the productivity area. Um, have you seen, I've asked so many people this, there's still no answer. I'm, I'm praying you've got data. Um, have you seen any data on worker productivity and hybrid working? I read a lot of statistics saying that people feel they're more productive. People say they're 60, they're 65% more productive at home than the workplace, but none are 
showing me the data on the other side, i.e. workplaces are going, oh my God, yeah, we're productivity through the whizang, you know, that's thing. Do we have a problem looming where, you know, people are actually uh, just not productive working at home? So you said, you said uh, data on productivity in a hybrid arrangement. In other words, comparing when someone's working from home versus working at the office. Yeah, or just remote in general. Basically, the data said that 65% of remote workers um, say that they feel they are more productive at home. And it was varying rates depending on how long you've actually been at the company. So, it, you know, that oh, data is a bit squish. Yeah, so there's, a, there's actually a great study by Nicholas Bloom um, and a couple colleagues that predates the pandemic looking at employees of a Chinese uh, tech firm. And unequivocally, they're, they're, well, I wouldn't say all of them are more productive at home. They mostly are. And, and what they found is there's two reasons for that. I mean, the first is that they're interrupted less often, right? And these are people for whom mm -hmm. these are largely customer service roles where we can set you up with a system where a customer has a problem and they come to your inbox or they come to your phone, right? So these are not largely collaborative roles. That's the other. Right. Um, but in, in that particular study, they found that, that most people were much more productive working from home because they were interrupted by colleagues less often. And because they started and ended their day at longer intervals. In other words, they would usually start their day when they'd normally start their commute. They would end their day when around when they would normally get home. And so you'd end up getting about another hour of work out of someone, right? So that can also make you more productive. Now, left mm -hmm. alone, those are, those are also recipes for burnout, right? And so that becomes a problem. And in fact, in the study, they ran it for, I believe it was three months at first. Uh, and then they did something really, really interesting. They said, okay, We've judged it. The study's been a success. We're going to make our uh, remote uh, option available to everyone. But then they followed the same people. And some people chose, you know what, I don't like this. I'm headed back to the office. And some people chose, yes, I'd love to stay at home. And no matter which category you were in, you got more productive. So, so part of it is that there is data that supports the idea that when people are working from home, especially when there are non-collaborative tasks, they are indeed more productive. The other part of the way the Rita study is that when people get to choose where they do their work, they tend to choose an environment that works best for them. Yeah, which I think is a fair assumption on any human condition. I, I still have, even with all of this data on key press software, surveillance tech and all of that sort of thing, I, won't, I wonder if the companies are hiding the discretionary effort that people are obviously giving. You know, they're, they're now saying there's three bumps of the day, isn't there, of work rather than two. Um, or whether something's going hideously wrong and people are just trying to fix it behind the scenes. And I'm, I, I don't have any answers. I don't have any data. No one's telling me, yep, yeah. remote work, they're more productive. They don't just feel well, see, it. They are more productive, you know. See, that's, that's what I love about the bloom uh the bloom study is that yes they are more productive and then we dig into it and realize the reason is that largely they're working for an extra hour a day yeah. <laughs> right everyone would be more productive per day or per week or per month if they were working an extra hour a day the problem is that's not necessarily sustainable and and again these are non-collaborative tasks so i don't i have yet to see solid data um on i, I on how people work you know remotely fully uh, on collaborative tasks in perpetuity. I, I, this is where I think hybrid is, is, I'm hoping, where hybrid settles in on, which is that there are reasons to get people together in person so we can synchronize, so we can create a problem solve, et cetera. And then there are definitely reasons to leave people alone and or let them go home and do the non-collaborative tasks from somewhere other than the office. There's no reason to show up to an office if all you're going to do is clear out your email inbox. But there are some pretty good reasons to show up to be around people still uh, when you're collaborating with them or having to problem solve with them, et cetera.
Yeah, I, I'm intrigued with that. I'm, I I go to a couple of co-working spaces um, in London in different areas, and I see the event spaces being used very differently now um, for all hands, which includes some virtual people that couldn't come in and that sort of stuff, all the way through to it's just an event where we all needed to be in the room together and that sort of thing. So I'm intrigued on, you know, what the four-walled four spaces, which a lot of people have, um, you know, massive uh what do you call it leases still to run out before they can get rid of them i, I sense a lot more people are going to be get, getting rid of offices um as soon as they can and renegotiating or they'll be flick, flipping them into co-working stuff but what, what's your take on the office and vis-a-vis -vis, you know uh, remote workers is it going to be a drop-in center is it going to be the creativity lab or do you think it's just going to depend completely on your business well, I mean, certainly it's going to depend on your business, on your industry, et cetera, right? If you're working in a very industrial manufacturing zone, et cetera, like we obviously still haven't figured out how to build cars from home. Mm -hmm. um, but that, and, but the, and that means that certain roles are going to have to, that, that support the manufacturing that we might still consider office-based are still going to need to be on site uh, and, and others less so, right? So I think there's, we're going to see a lot of variance by industry. Um, I, can, I can tell you right now, the organizations that I'm talking to and some that I'm working with, I'll be honest, the majority of them, I think, have the wrong approach, which is that they're trying to solve for a percentage of time. They're doing the easy math and they're going, oh, well, Gallup says people are most engaged if they spend two to three days working from home, which is a true statement. And then they say, OK, our policy is you can work two to three days from home. Like that's not what we just talked about is that the task we're doing matters. Right. We need to right. not be thinking about this in, in terms of time. We need to be thinking about it in, in, in terms of task. Right. So. I think that means most most organizations, most businesses, especially large organizations, like you said, the ones that are in the leases, et cetera, most of them are not looking to get rid of their offices. They may be looking to downsize, especially if they're in big mm -hmm. urban centers, right? Looking to downsize, looking to create more collaborative spaces um, and, and that sort of thing, but not looking to get rid of it altogether because they recognize there are certain tasks that, that we're going to need to do in person. And if we already own the space, we might as well use it, right? Um, and then there are remote first organizations that have already decided to go remote first and they were able to get out of said leases and what have you. And I think they're going to be a little surprised to find in 2023 how much money is spent bringing everyone back together God, and yeah. renting from a hotel or something like that. Well, I mean, it's going to be bang time for, like you say, hotels and that sort of stuff. But I think it's going to I think it's going to be an interesting how it plays out, because I think to get people back to anywhere at the moment, certainly, you know, when rates are going up and whatnot, is just a challenge because it has to be sort of incredibly it had to be really worth their time before. And now it has to almost like put money in their pocket. Um, and, you know, the fact of moving out of the house at the moment is very much the opposite of that. So I, I don't I don't um, what do you call it? uh you know odds the the leaders doing this at the moment they are having to make incredibly difficult decisions but i i hear the same thing as you do they're not asking their people they're um they're looking at research from mckinsey gallup and all of those sorts of people and that was one of the things that made me do this season is because when i looked at the share of voice of all of the stuff that was happening about the future of work you can draw a little line back to a report that came from mckinsey and 35% of that was then. And then that became what the future of work was. Mm -hmm. So I was really intrigued when I sort of started like digging around going like, but is that true or is that just their clients and what they're doing? You know? <laughs> and so it's kind of interesting to sort of see where some of the narratives have gone because we're seeing a lot of it change. One in general is um, an inflection point. We were talking about it yesterday with Julia Hobsbawm. Um, Tim from the Leesman Group, or Leesman Index rather, uh, said that there's now an inflection point happening with generations going back to the office. So it used to be that young people were really loving the office 
Uh, no, sorry, the old, the yeah, young people really wanted to uh, go back to the office, and now it's the opposite way, or flipping those. I can't remember which way. I've got them mixed around. But yeah, yeah so, so a couple of thoughts. One, uh, one, if I remember right, it was also McKinsey that told CNN Plus they'd have two million subscribers. And yeah, yes, 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 right? that so, is true. So the the function sometimes of consultants is to tell senior leaders what they wanted to do anyway, but now they can blame BCG or McKinsey, right? Um, well, I, I, I haven't found good data for this on the generational side. I can tell you what I'm seeing from the clients that I'm working with. And there's really a bifurcation. I, I don't think it actually is uh, it, it best to think of it in terms of pure age. I think it's I, I, the, the easiest way I've come to describe it. And this gets a little too personal for some people I realize is I call it pre-nesters, nesters and empty nesters, right? So mm -hmm. if you're later in your career, you tend to be an empty nester, meaning your kids are uh, gone. Maybe you were a never nester, right? But you don't have any kids. You're maybe not taking care of them. So you're keen to get back to the office, to interact, et cetera. Uh, I'm seeing that in most cities. Bigger cities, I, I see a higher population of, you know, like the, the joke I make is that the, the partners at law firms in New York City obviously don't want to leave their home from Greenwich. But, you know, in Cleveland, we see the older generations that are empty nesters. Yeah, I'd love to come back to the office and interact with everybody. The pre-nesters, the very young people, upwardly mobile, they want FaceTime with senior leaders, et cetera. They're also really keen to get back. It's the, it's the actual nesters, the people who are taking care of school-aged or younger-than-school-aged children, maybe also sandwiched folks taking care of an elderly parent, et cetera. They're the ones that are like, yeah, look, work is not the most important thing in my life right now. I, I, will, I will do as much of it as I need to do to be able to support my role, but I really don't want to come back to the office because I've found a better way to juggle these different spheres of my life, but it involves flexibility, right? So I think of it kind of as what I'm seeing is like a bifurcation uh, with the folks that are in that middle, let's call that 35 to 50, if I, if I had to pick an age. But again, all of these are generalizations. Those are the ones that are, I think, most keen on that flexible work thing. And there's personal reasons for that. Yeah, I think the I think I've got it right in my head now. It's the older people wanted to go back to the um, no, young people wanted to go back to the office first. And the older mm -hmm. people were like, no, I'm fine. I've got my cushy lifestyle and that sort of thing. And now they've flipped it. So it's the young people who got a taste of what the office was and be like, oh, no, I remember I didn't actually like that. Or then nothing's changed. So why would I go back? And that sort of thing. And now the older people are the ones that want to go back because they're finding it a struggle. Or this was what he hypothesized. We still haven't got the data on it. Um, they're struggling to manage. They're struggling to figure out their place. They're, they're worried about power structures and that sort of thing. So uh, it, time will tell on that. I think it's an interesting um, area to sort of look at. I don't think there's an easy um answer to any building certainly when there's money and leases involved people do get crazy when you know money's coming out but nothing's being used i still think what's best for your people you know but people don't ask you know look at it that way it's, it's yeah. very weird yeah and I'll, and I'll tell you my biggest fear which is that uh there will be a difference between what we say and what we do in our actions especially senior leaders we saw, we saw the same thing by the way in the in the mid-teens when uh, Netflix's culture deck came out and suddenly every company was promoting that they had an unlimited vacation policy. <laughs> yeah. But but in a lot of organizations, what it really meant is you never take vacation and we don't pay you your PTO at the end of the year either. So it's a win-win for the company and a lost loss yeah. for people. The, the difference is in, in those unlimited vacation organizations that made it work, they usually had senior leaders that were very showy about the fact that, hey, we're gone for the next uh, month. I'm working remotely from this house that my family rented in, in you know, on the beach and, and what have you. And I think it's going to be the same thing here. If we end up saying, oh, yeah, people can spend two to three days of their time working away from the office. But the C-suite and the next level down are there five of those days and then 
middle managers want FaceTime with those people to get promoted. So they're going to be there more often too. And then you're going to realize even as the bottom person on the totem pole, that the only way you get FaceTime with your boss is to be the event by 2025, everybody will be back at the office, even though we say we have a flexible work arrangement. Mm. I think that's the killer, isn't it? It's I think people will let things slide or they'll, you know, almost be sort of pulled back to the office because other people are and they won't be sticking firm to their guns of like, no, 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 this was a decision I made for me and I need to negotiate. There are people in my life who have um, quit jobs and said, I'm I will need to quit unless I'm working remotely. I'm moving and that sort of stuff. And it's kind of interesting to see how companies have reacted to that. Most have been quite sort of uh, congenial about it. But then there are others who are like, oh, well, we'll just take down your pay. So uh, it's a real sort of dichotomy about how people reacting to this, which I think, again, talks a lot about the culture, but certainly reaffirming values to people. Um, I have a question. It was in the book. You've used, um, allow me to beat you up for a second, an aggressive term in the book um, that works, uh, but I don't, I want you to challenge, I want to challenge you to recreate it and ask you a question. So in the book, you say, what are we fighting for when you're talking about respectful environments? Um, How important do you think is language when creating a virtual culture? Yeah. I mean, I think language is important. That that term fight uh, is an element of building purpose inside of a culture and making sure teams know why the work that, you know, if, if the Simon Sinek would be why, I, I mm. actually, I, I more tend to think that the better answer is who, in other words, who's served by the work that we do. Um, and, and I found a lot of potency. I found I could cut through the clutter when I was dealing with organizations of the paragraph long mission statement that blah, 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 shareholder value and sustainability at the same time, as if those things weren't diametrically opposed most of the time. (laughs) Um, I found I could cut through a lot of it by saying, hey, what are we fighting for? Or I would sometimes say, what are we fighting to change? That idea of a fight, not against competitors, but a broader push for societal change. And I use fight here less, not aggressively, right? Although sometimes I get misconstrued as that. And you're right, it does come off a little strong. I use it the way maybe a politician would say they're fighting for the little guy or something like that. I mean, like what change is so important to us that we see it as actually a conflict and something we're willing to push through the difficulty for in order to see that achieved in the world. Mm. Do you think something like what are our beliefs would be better Uh, or is that weaker? uh, So I think I I think it's fine. I don't don't think it's better or, or weaker. I don't think that our beliefs stick to the change. Right. I think before you can really have a compelling story about why your organization exists, you also need to have a story about what's wrong with the world, mm-hmm. right? What, or what's wrong with your industry or what's wrong. And then, then you can tell me that your beliefs are that that needs to be changed, right? Um, you, so you need to have that belief that this is wrong and also the belief that this is how we're going to change it. And the, the best way I could find to combine those two things is, is like I said, with that, with that term, what are, we, what are we fighting for? I'm sure there's a way to do it that, it, that doesn't involve the word fight. Um, I just did 17 years as a martial artist. I, t- I tend to default to that one, if you know what I mean. That's really interesting because the reason why I ask it is I interviewed and a, a friend now, um, Sifu Julian Hitch, and he wrote Winning Not Fighting, which is a book um, about, um, you know, the language that we use in the boardroom and that sort of thing and how uh, a lot of culture is derived from aggression. And rightly or wrongly, that's not good for some people. That's incredibly good for others. But you have to be careful about, you know, when you're doing it in the boardroom and that a lot of the issues when I find with people's mission statements and that are derived from the VC plays that they've done beforehand to get money and that sort of thing. They've either had an incredibly aggressive one, and so they love using that language, or they have one that sort of said, no, 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 boil it down, boil it down, boil it down. And you've got those, then you've got the weak source um, ones. 
you know, or you've got Uber, right, who come up with a really great one and have, um, you know, arguably changed the world. Um, I, I think there's a lot to be said for, you know, mission statements and boiling things down. And it's just a direction, I think, for people to head in or a problem to solve and that sort of stuff. I, I never realised until I read that book how much my language was aggressive. And I I would say, you know, if I've done personality tests, it's I'm more of an aggressive speaker than most people sort of probably care to listen to. But um, it certainly helped me to sort of tailor how I'm listening to people as well, which I, I thought I didn't think for a long time that that would be what I would get out of it. But yeah, really, really sort of interesting elements for it. Let me um, pick you up on one thing as well um, in the book that I was really interested about artifacts and rituals. You mentioned that they're keys to building culture, but tell me how they work with remote working. Yeah, well, this is actually part of the dilemma, right? Every, every organization when you go to study its culture, it has artifacts, it has, it has rituals, Art, artifacts, tangible things that you can see um, that often carry some level of meaning, right? So a lot of organizations, especially in the lobby, you have early products or, or things like that, or, or, or you have, I mean, the, the foosball table, if you're saying that your company culture is fun, et cetera, can be that artifact that you can point to. If you walk through, you know, Pixar's headquarters in Emeryville, California, there are replicas of all of their characters, uh, life-size versions of them that, that speak to the importance of the stories and all that sort of thing. So those are artifacts of those tangible things. Rituals are, are things we do, habitual things. And these are everything from, you know, jargon, uh, acronyms that we used, inside jokes that we have throughout the past, or even like I was working with a sales organization a couple weeks ago and our, our actual big dilemma trying to solve as a transition to your point about remote was that they were a, a, a pit-based call center based um, in sales environment, right? So you would call clients on the phone, you'd be in the SaaS business, everybody, there's 300 people in the room. And when you close the deal on the phone, you ran up to the front of the room and you hit the giant gong and everybody celebrated that you closed the deal. Now, the idea that I could be on the phone with a potential client and then all of a sudden there's a gong in the background of it, like it never occurred to them that that might actually be a problem, but it was, you know, <laughs> some, something they saw in Boiler Room or Wolf of Wall Street or something like that and they decided to, to mimic. And it is a powerful ritual, right? It's a ritual that you can do to celebrate a, a win. Well, mm. how do you make a virtual gong, right? And this was the big thing I, I was trying to convey to them is we need a, another way to celebrate it. And just sending out a company-wide email maybe doesn't, doesn't do it justice, right? Um, so, so we tried to come up with what symbols, what other things had intrinsic meaning that could maybe sent out and either recreated virtually um, or seen. Maybe it's something we pass from house to house, almost like a, a Stanley Cup type of thing. There's a, there's a bunch of different ideas we came up with. I don't know that we ended up settling on one in that conversation, but I'm working with them again uh, in a couple of weeks. Um, but that was the idea, right? Part of the, the reason we felt left out, part of the reason why we don't we feel less like a team, if we're feeling less like a team, working remotely these past two years is that a lot of our artifacts and rituals relied on in-person interactions. We never thought about what the virtual version of these things could be. And, and certain, some teams have done a great job building them back. Right. Mm. Uh, like I worked, I worked with one team and what we did was we built um, as a, a sort of a, sort of an artifact, we built virtual backgrounds that had, we built five for the five different companies, core values. And the idea was that when you do your weekly all hands, you reflect on which value you really want to be focused on that week and you make it your virtual background. And then, oh, that's you know, and, and then you jump on that call and then everybody else in the team sees, oh, you're working on being bold. You're working on being inclusive, et cetera, right? So little things like that, little little virtual versions of, of um, artifacts and things like that can, can really matter. Some teams develop like 
you know, we, we're used to the thumbs up and the clap emojis inside a Zoom, et cetera. But, you know, your mm. Apple keyboard or your Android keyboard has a myriad of other emojis that can suddenly become an inside joke. And I'm not talking about the ones people who are listening are thinking about. I'm talking about ones that are safe for work. But there's a, <laughs> there's a lot of them that are totally unused um, that can become these really interesting kind of inside jokes that you could see as, a, as an artifact for reinforcing certain stuff, right? Mm. So. Um, little, little things like that uh, can become a, a powerful way to just signal in-group belonging. If I see that random emoji and I understand that it actually is a way of somebody giving cheers or somebody giving props to somebody else, I get the joke. So not only do I get the positive feedback, but because it's a joke that only my team gets, I feel closer to that team as a result. Mm. I've got a couple of um, quick fire ones because I know we've, uh, we've got a hard stop. But um, what's your take on promotion and uh, remote working? Do you think it's going to lead to more inequality? H- how do you think leaders should prepare for this? I mean, I'll give you my I'll give you my long term thing. I think fully remote work in the at least in the developed world is probably going to double. And when I say double, I mean, it's going to go from about four to five percent of the workforce to eight to ten and I think the rest of people are going to pull for uh, a more hybrid arrangement. That terrifies me because we already knew of pre-pandemic, we knew of a, a bias in flex time was what we called it before we called it hybrid, right? We knew that there was a bias when people requested it. We tended to assume that women, for example, requested it because they wanted it to, they were less committed and needed to take care of home life, et cetera, and men committed to it because they were just, they were uh, a players who just like to work weird hours and wake up at 4.30 in the morning like Jocko Willink or, or David Goggins, and that's why they're requesting their flex time. No no reasonable reason for that. I mean, I can tell you that as the husband of, a, of a, an ER doctor, I'm the one that gets my kids off the school bus, right? There's no gender thing about that. And yet those stigmas still exist, and it terrifies me. Sorry, very long answer to your rapid-fire question, but yeah. No, that's fine. That's fine. Um, another one. Uh, do you think people see working remotely not as the main problem or solution, but more of a symptom of a bigger issue? Oh, interesting. Um, I think a lot of people still view remote working as a as a problem to be solved. I think a lot of people still view it as I'm going and, and rightly so. A lot of leaders still view it as this is something I need to solve because it's not going away. And, and I don't think it is. Uh, unfortunately, I think a lot of organizations are also doing like I worked with and strongly recommended against this, but an organization that I found out was saying remote options available in their job listings and then attempting to convince the person in the second or third interview uh, to come into the office, to actually move to where we are, et cetera. And, and that's a big problem. So I think I think they see remote working as a as a problem to be solved, but that they'll need a, a solution to it because it's going to be especially when we add in the, the contractors idea, the enterprise level yeah. contractors we were talking about before, it's not a problem that's going away, right? It's not a situation where everybody can just suddenly come back. Uh, but it, it very ranges so much by industry, by company, et cetera, that it's still a very strong problem to be solved. Mm. Um, perks are a big part of culture. They're coming back into the zeitgeist now. This time they're being taken away, it seems, by large tech corporations. Um, when I think of the job packages I've had um, at places, perks weren't really that worth that much. Uh, and that's thing. That's not so much the case now. There's a lot of people um, getting good packages when they move and that sort of thing. Where do you think they're going to go in the future? Um, a business is going to be paying for people's pet insurance. <laughs> I mean, certainly we all kind of figured out even before the pandemic that a lot of the perks that were getting people um, that were that were available when you come to campus 
were really just a trick to get you more there more often. So that's why the food was free. That's why the yeah. dry cleaning was free, et cetera. Uh, pet insurance specifically, I have no idea. I do think we're going to see an increase in perks and benefits around mental health. Not, you know, be, obviously the pandemic made us realize we needed to be supporting that. Um, but there's a there's a dollars and cents reason to be paying attention to the health of uh, and emotional health of your employees. Now, in the United States, where I am, that's going to be an HR law nightmare. Yeah. Uh, but, I, but I think when we solve that five to 10 years from now, I think or, more organizations have realized over the last two years that they need to support the mental health of their people. And they're going to be finding ways to do that, some of which might manifest in, in those perks and benefits. I think the biggest learning I've had over this um, season so far has been that 30% of people still don't have the right chair at home. I think the next seasons could be buying people spinal uh, injury insurance and stuff like that because they, they just don't have the right stuff at home still. And it's two or three years into it. It's crazy. Yeah, it's possible, right? And some of them don't want it or or, and, or some of them just need permission. Like I, I've worked with a lot of, mostly entrepreneurs, mostly smaller organizations because the you know there's a lot less... I don't know, um, sign offs to have on the on the procurement paperwork, but who mm. have thought about office stipends and even doing there's one I'm blanking on the name of it. but Somebody sent me a link to a website and it was essentially a, a, a Zoom ergonomic consult that you could buy for your employees. So your employees, would, right, would sign into Zoom and then they would just tour them around the office that you're working in. And then that person would make recommendations about presumably that then the company would pay for it to make those improvements to better. <laughs> You'd hire. Yeah, for sure. Right. Now, what I what I think is really interesting is, and this is just a personal bias, I don't have data on this, but as somebody who's worked from home since 2016, who's done it on multiple computers, a university issued one, personal one, et cetera, I think we're going to see a lot of people who don't necessarily care about the ergonomics levels, et cetera, but they want to do their work on their devices with their setup, et cetera. And that's going to mm. drive the IT people absolutely mad, right? What do you mean 40% of the company wants to work on Apple? Our systems are built for Windows. Like that's that's going to be a problem, but I, I don't know that it's going away. I, I think more and more we're going to have to let people use the tools they want to use. I think that's interesting. It's certainly something we haven't touched upon in this uh, season, but security is a massive issue when it comes to the world of remote working. Everybody literally ran home, hasn't left their housing, but nobody's upgraded their firewalls, their security, their probably lapsed passwords. All of that sort of stuff is still very much up to play. But again, moving forward as well, is going to be hacking someone's home a lot easier than hacking an office? I would argue yes, most probably, you know, that's the thing. So it's definitely something to um, to think about. I think for a lot of people, like you say, IT departments have a, a world of hurt coming, I think, when people just want to work for, remotely from anywhere i've i've seen people's computers lock up because they think it's been stolen but they're just in a cafe it's like nuts um yeah i'm, yeah. I'm gonna ask everyone um on the season but what's your take on the metaverse and world of work are we going to be avatars floating between virtual offices or do you think <laughs> buying stock in zoom is still a great idea where do you think it's going to go um you know i have i have played with a variety of different metaverse like tools i don't know that we're going for a full-on ready player one but i was actually just demoing a software um, that I think is really interesting because it creates a visual way using the office metaphor. It creates a visual way to signal when you're interruptible and when you're not, when you're working from home. I mean, that's a big dilemma, right? When you're working before in an office and you're working, but your door is open to your office or, you know, you have headphones off or something like that. You signal to people that, yeah, I can be disturbed right now. There's not really a virtual way to do that. And so those little quick, Hey, Paul, I just have a quick question. I just need a quick clarification on something. We end up saying, we end up scheduling a Zoom, a 30-minute Zoom call two days from now. And it ends up being much less efficient than if I were interruptible. And none of the platforms, Zooms, Teams, et cetera, really have a good way to do that. They try, but they don't have as good a way to do that. So I think there's a role for the metaverse in the workplace 
in that regard, that we do still rely on some visual office-based cues from, you know, the entirety of existence being social animals that we haven't yet built and that when we build will help us work remotely better. I think teaching people about urgency and importance when they start work would be a fundamental game changer for most people's businesses when it comes to interrupting people. But definitely I'm, I'm into technology helping in that sort of way. I've still not seen a metaverse where I'm like, that is someone who's really thought about not putting people back in prison. Interesting. How interesting. You know, that's the thing. It's very much like, look, it looks just like your office, the one you ran away from three years ago. It's, <laughs> it's quite interesting that nobody's like, yeah, I want to be on a cloud. No, he can be on a rock stage and like we're having a meeting. It's like, OK, sure. It's very, very interesting to me where the designers have gone with it. It's it's very much like prison um, still. Okay. Yeah, you know, and I, and I will and I will say this this tool that I was using was not like put the goggles on and walk through the whatever. It was a simple mm. Uh, thing that ran in the background of your computer and i thought oh that's an interesting it's, it's more like a microverse than a metaverse if i will and that was a really yeah. intriguing one i mean ultimately it's about a list isn't it it's like hey this is a number 10 for me but probably a number two for you and then you just it's a computer sorts them and go right work through it it's probably going to take you about five minutes go for it you got time now excellent you know and then you set timers of things if they expire and you know the technology is there people just have to think a bit more behaviorally about how people need to answer things you know you've got like an intern or a junior member of staff who's probably panicking that you know something needs to be checked when in fact it could go out next week and it makes no difference you know but without them knowing the importance and urgency of, a, of things it's it's kind of a little bit um awkward for everyone and you know undue stress and all of that so who knows hopefully the tech gods will sort us all out and that sort of thing um okay as ever we end with desert island tweets that is the part of mouthwash where the guest picks a tweet or two for uh, that's changed their mind or way of thinking in some way um turn your attention to the nest if you're listening live and there is a uh, tweet from visualize value and if you want to follow them it's visualize value or one word and visualize is spelled with a z um or a z for my american listeners and it says hard choices easy life easy choices hard life and that's by jersey gregoric um why did you pick this one yeah, so I, I loved this quote for a really long time. Um, I actually, when, when Visualize Value came out with this tweet, which is their whole big shtick is they take a lot of these notes, these, uh, these sayings, et cetera, and they find a way to visualize them. This mm. became actually the lock screen on my phone. So this is why my mind um, went here. And I think it's just, you know, to your point, actually what we were just talking about and urgency and importance, et cetera. Often if you do the hard choices early on, everything gets much better, but we don't tend to do that. And as a result, we, we fall prey to everything else. And that's, that's Jersey's point, right? If you do the hard, if you make the hard choices now, this is Jocko Willink's idea that discipline equals freedom, right? If you, if you do the things that you're putting off now, you end up easier down the road, but often we choose easy now without realizing how much harder that makes things in the future. And so I, I keep it as my lock screen, that, that little cross symbol that you see. Um, as just a really good reminder to make the hard choices, maybe stay off TikTok and Instagram and make the hard choices of doing actual work on this device instead of <laughs> instead of just curing my boredom. Absolutely. Absolutely. I went um, mobile zero when I got the, the new iPhone and I just didn't do the automatic. I'll oh, put everything back on my phone. Uh, I didn't download about I think it was 95 percent of the apps that I had on there. You know, and that sort of thing. It was just the ones that you need. And then I turned my phone gray screen. And what's the other thing that I did? Oh, notification zero as well. Nothing was allowed to notify me unless it was mum and dad or my sister. And um, I think I used my phone about 10% compared to what I did. Yeah. No, I so, love that. Yeah. I, 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 they, have a, they have, at least on an iPhone now, they have that system where it'll automatically like move to the cloud and delete yeah. the app. 
Um, I, I wish though, the problem I have with that is, you know, you don't use it in a week and it saves space by taking it off, but then it's still there as an icon and you can redownload it. Exactly, I wish they had a yeah. thing you could set where like, you know what, if I don't touch this thing in 90 days, just take it off entirely. Yeah. Or keep it on the device. Just don't let me see it. Yeah. 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 hundred percent. I'm sure they do something like that with focus or whatever. I don't know. Do not disturb and all that jazz. Um, okay. That is a wrap on episode 15 of season four. My thanks to David Berkus for his ha- very handy uh, focus on work culture and where it's going. Uh, I'm extremely interested to see where it goes, I think, and how businesses recreate it for the next few decades of work. Cause it feels like there's a period where, Yep, we've got to get ducks in a row right now, but what are we building as well? That's that's the interesting bit. So yeah, follow David on Twitter for more. Get the book, Leading From Anywhere, and check out davidberkers.com for more information. Any final words of advice uh, for listeners, David? Uh, I mean, I, Jersey Gregoric says it the best, right? Hard choices, easy life, easy choices, hard life. I get it. Where we are right now with remote work, we're having to make some really uh, tease things out, make some hard choices, make some difficult choices, or we can punt the ball. But if we punt it, it'll just make it more difficult 2023, four or five and beyond. So let's do the hard work now. Love that. Love that. Okay. Up next on Mouthwash is Harvard economics professor Claudia Golden. And we're talking gender issues in the workplace. Uh, so I'm on highly dodgy ground. Um, we're on the slightly later time of 9 p.m. UK, but fear not. Head over to mouthwash.norby.live and you can get a text alert so you never miss a minute. I urge you to tune in. I'm going to be asking some big questions. It's going to be feisty. And like I said, I'm out of my depth. So I'm interested to see where it goes. <laughs> uh, Mouthwash is produced by Suze and the team at Big Tent Media. Use them for all your audio needs. As with everything Mouthwash, even the text alerts can be found over at mouthwashshow.com. So if you need anything, mouthwashshow.com is the one to go to. I'm a firm believer that you do not remember the days, we remember the moments, and I hope this has been one for you. I am Paul Armstrong, this is Mouthwash, listening again soon for more fresh chat that leaves you more confident. Thanks for listening to Mouthwash. Please share it in a network you trust and check out our sponsors. Season four of Mouthwash was sponsored by Workplace by Meta. The easy to use features at Workplace help people work together in new ways. To make your place of work a great place to work, visit workplace.com forward slash human. That's workplace.com forward slash human. Have a great day.